I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is still an enormous double standard, like in terms of gender. And maybe it's because there are just more male stars that move the needle, you know, in terms of box office. But it's still a struggle every time to get movies made where women are really at the centre of them. I think what happens in Hollywood is that they're like, well, we've got one of those. (laughs) You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Well, we are thrilled to have at Short Black this morning the one and only Bruna Papandrea. Bruna, I've been waiting for about two years to talk to you. Everyone says you're the most powerful Australian (laughs) in Hollywood. How does that sit with you? I mean, I don't think it's true, but um, (laughs) so funny. No, you know, I still pinch myself every day because, you know, I grew up in Elizabeth in South Australia, which is about as far away from Hollywood as you can get. And so I still most days have those moments where I'm like, how did this happen? It's crazy. Well, you're an Emmy Award winning producer and extremely well connected in the powerful halls of Hollywood and Australia. And you share your time between Australia and America and now London. I believe you're opening an office up in London. Yeah, we just announced that. Walk me back to how it all started. Where was the fascination in storytelling and movies? Drama? I think it started when I was pretty young, actually. I, even as a child, I always have this thing where I say it takes one teacher to change your life and I think for me that was true. I went to a school that, you know, and grew up in an area that didn't have a ton of resources but I had a fabulous drama and a music teacher and we would do school productions. And so even as a young teenager I loved being part of the kind of school production and I loved acting. I really wanted to be an actor and then I really wanted to be a writer but apparently I was not good at either. So um, I ended up a producer. I got asked the other night, and I, was, I did a Q&A with Mila Kunis, who I have a movie coming out with, and they, they asked, there was a, a Q&A for the Screen Actors Guild. They were asking them how they got their first SAG card, and then it came to me. They said, we understand you wanted to be an actor. And I was like, yeah, I got rejected, like, from every drama school in the country twice, and it wasn't to be. And I, I always think about that, you know, kind of how the path led me to this, and I think it's one of the reasons I love actors so much. Do you have an ongoing frustration as you watch them roll out the lines and perform the characters? Do you sort of think, I did it differently? Yeah, no, I do not. Not once do I ever think that. No, You're not going to think that no. about Nicole Kidman and no, Reese no. Witherspoon. Can you imagine? And- <laughs> Can you imagine? But I do know how hard, you know, I, I know how hard it is and, I, and I, I think it's one of the reasons actually that I produce with so many actors because I think if I was an actor, if I had taken that path, I would be very frustrated if someone else was making all those decisions. Yeah. Trying to kind of wrestle back some control for myself. Now, you gave me a shortened version of your start and how yep. it all began, but what's your big break? I mean, I think I had two significant breaks in my career. The first was 
when I, you know, I, I was working a bit in television commercials and I had gone to New York and volunteered for a movie that I ended up producing. But my first significant break was when my, my dear friend Robert Connolly got offered this movie Better Than Sex to produce and he was too busy and he said you should meet my friend Bruna. And that was really what, what I would say is my first movie, producing it on my own, Jonathan Toplitsky directing, um, Susie Porter and David Wenham. That was in 1999. That was my kind of first start to finish, raise the money, make the movie. And then that really was the thing that allowed me to travel to film festivals where I got really the biggest break of my career, which was meeting Anthony Mangella. So it's about building those networks and being seen as well as having the runs on the board. Yeah, I think so. And I think what's great about coming up in Australia is you kind of, I think if you if you come up in other countries, you know, there are tracks, you know, you can go the development track, you can work in physical production. In Australia, you kind of have to do it all, you know, because it's not a big industry. I think it's why we do so well overseas. And so I think what was amazing is because the government supports those voices, they also supported me going to international film festivals to get the movie out there. And it was at those festivals that I made many of the kind of international connections I still have today. A lot of people get confused about the difference between being a director and being a producer. And you just mentioned being a producer, you had to raise the money as well as produce the film. So what's the key role, do you think? What's the key strength in being a great producer? Is it about being able to bankroll it or is it about finding the right people? Yeah, I think different producers have different strengths and I think some don't do it all. I think my specific skill is being able to identify great stories that I think will translate to the screen and being very dogged and passionate about finding every path in order to do that. Because that's the heart, that for me is the hardest part of the job is finding something someone wants to spend money on, a lot of money often. At the point where someone's saying we're going to make something, I can always find great people to make it. That I feel like it's, it's not that executing it is not difficult, but for me, the hardest part is like, how do you convince someone to spend, you know, anywhere from $5 million to $100 million telling a story? And is it a combination of having the right story and the right people? Or do you sometimes just go with a great story? For me, it's about, I've always strived to listen to my instincts about what I feel is unique, is a unique point of storytelling. Because, you know, I think it's easy after the fact and in fact, I've had it happen to me. I've been very lucky in that some of the things I've produced have become almost zeitgeisty in the sense that, you know, I can't tell you how many people have said, we want to make Big Little Lies. I'm like, but we did that already. Let's make something else. And so I think for me, it's just about listening to the instinct of like what's character driven. Is it moving? Is it dramatic? If it's a thriller, you know, can you see yourself wanting to engage more and more? And so the writing is everything. It really is. It's literally everything. So with a, a movie, a series like Big Little Lies, I mean, obviously it was based on a book from an Australian, yeah. Miss Moriarty, who, you know, got a fabulous track record and you clearly have a long-standing relationship. Yeah. But then you've got to get the script written. And what's that tension like between the original author and then the script writers? <laughs> Such a great question because it's it can be great, you know, and in the case of Leanne, specifically, I mean, that's a great story in itself because I'm such a kind of devoted Australian. Uh, you know, I keep track of what Australia, other Australians are doing, even though I'm based here now for the most part. 
when I wasn't, I tried to always keep track of what Australian voices were doing. And when someone handed me the book, I had no idea she was Australian. I knew she was a big bestseller, but I just didn't know her, which was kind of crazy because she'd had a lot of success. I remember reading the book thinking, oh, great, I can go make it in Australia. Obviously, didn't giving it to Nicole, talking to Reese about it. Obviously, it didn't happen that way. The first question we ask her, which is what we ask every novelist, is what do you want your involvement to be? Some novelists are absolutely clear that they want to maybe adapt a script. Some are like, I want to read it, I weigh in on what's important, but go with God, this is your business. And then others are, I think, somewhere in between where they want to um, kind of be deeply involved and they do want it to be more faithful to their original work. And that's another conversation. So, yeah, it's the biggest decision I'll ever make, I think, is who's going to adapt the screenplay. I'd hate to be your intray. <laughs> it's not that bad, actually. Do you have a, a cast of people that kind of manage and sort through that? I mean, globally, content is king. Yeah. On every network, on every platform, it's all about content. And for someone like you who's instrumental in bringing that to life, everyone's beating a path to your door. I always say as a producer, actually, you don't get as many incoming calls as you think. You get a lot of, you make a lot of outgoing calls because, you know, even though I do have a great track record, I'm still not the end user per se. And I have friends that work at networks and run networks and their intro is very busy because they're buying the material. Yeah, we have a system. So I've actually been really lucky. I've had a, a few women work for me for a very long time. And so they have a really specific idea of what I'm going to respond to. I'm also really good at knowing what I need to read straight away, just depending who it comes from. Is it an agent that you've bought books from before? Is it a writer you've done business with before? We do have a pretty strict policy of not taking anything that doesn't come through an agent because we have to. You just otherwise, yeah, I'd have manuscripts lined up outside the door. you got to manage it. I mean, what springs to mind in, in that network that you alluded to was someone like Emma Cooper and the movie Penguin. Yeah. Was that how it happened? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's strange. I've obviously I've come up in the business for a long time and I have a lot of friends in the business. And that's a great story because Naomi and I have been friends a long time. Watts, Naomi Watts, for those that don't know her, but they should. <laughs> I think they do. They do. But we tried to find something for years. We'd come so close. And her and Emma and I go back a very long way, 30 years. And I remember where I was when Emma called me and said, oh, I've read this book, Penguin Bloom. I was like, no, 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 too bit. You know, I was, I, was so, I was in the middle of Big Little Lies actually filming and I was like, I can't, can't take out anything else. And then she was just, just, just read it or just watch. I actually watched, I think Cam did a book trailer it was on the internet, it was like two minutes. And of course I watched it and I was like, oh my God, yeah. The no can become yes pretty quickly, you know, when you fall in love. I know Sam and I'm um, involved with spinal cord injury, spinal cure. And so I was thrilled for her that the story made it to the big screen and, and to showcase, you know, what life is really like for those that are suffering spinal cord injury. You become very well known for championing women's stories. But the big issue confronting a lot of people globally is ageism. Is that something you acknowledge exists in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think all the isms exist still, unfortunately. I actually have a movie coming out now that deals with multiple person sexual assault and is was written pre-Me Too, actually, Jessica Knoll's book, Like This Girl Alive. This book has taken, people say to me, like, why has it taken seven years to be the longest thing I've had? And I'm very proud of it. And I think it's easy you know, in retrospect, like people are still like, well, we, we, we want to be more reflective. You know, we want to tell stories with people with disabilities. We want to do this. But every time we try and sell it, it is still like starting again. And this is despite me. 
can because you, you you're right. You know, you think, okay, I have a pretty good track record. Sometimes I want to scream and just say, you have to trust me. You have to trust me. But it is. I think we still live in that world where you have to until you give it to them and the audiences get created. It's easy to look back and go, of course, that was going to be a hit. So every time it's really difficult. I think particularly with people with disabilities, like we're trying now to put together a show with a disabled actress in a a wheelchair as the lead. You know, it hasn't been as easy as it should be. It's a really great story, you know. We don't have it on our screens. The same can be said for we have another book that we optioned with two um, Latinx leads at the centre, young women, and it's difficult. And so I think that we're still battling against the kind of what people understand are the norms and can work and that it's our job to create something successful so that it makes it easier for the next. And I guess it's understandable that people need to see proven success. So until Big Little Lies happened, stories about a a group of women in everyday life dealing with, you know, unusual twists and turns set on the west coast of California wouldn't necessarily have sold, just like reality TV didn't exist and now all of a sudden there's too many dating shows for for my liking. I guess the same will be said for movies about those with disabilities. You know, until you push through and can prove that there is success at the other end, the big networks don't really listen. I think that's right and, you know, it is slightly frustrating though. I mean, again, I'm not a complainer and and I've no right to complain. I get a lot made but... There is still an enormous double standard, like in terms of gender. And maybe it's because there are just more male stars that move the needle, you know, in terms of box office. But it's still a struggle every time to get movies made where women are really at the centre of them, whether that's a female military movie, you know. We're trying to make something else right now, which has three women over 50 at the centre of it. And it's, you know, it's not a sure thing. I think what happens in Hollywood is that they're like, well, we've got one of those. (laughs) How many male things with men over 50 do you have? They don't make, the the equation is different. And this is despite the fact that women clearly drive viewing habits. In fact, older women clearly drive viewing habits and household choices. So that to me is still remains baffling. Yeah, like they still drive everything. But um, we're the last voice to be heard. Not the last, we're, we're getting louder. Yeah. You know, your speed dial is clearly some of Hollywood's biggest names and you could name drop better than anyone. But when I think about people like Nicole and Reese and Naomi and I see them in the last decade or so, they've made some really brave choices. What's driven that, do you think? I mean, I think kind of what where we started, it's, it's really about like taking that power back for themselves, seeing years of being offered you know, even at the height of their success, roles that just weren't as interesting as the ones men were being offered. So I think the desire to just thrive and create that for themselves. And also not not just in our business, you know, Naomi's in the middle of starting a business that's really passionate about menopause and women. Doing some great stuff on yeah, Instagram, really, really talking yeah. it up and, and, and I think being comical about it as well helps. Yeah, and just being passionate about it, you know, and kind of demystifying it, which I think is key. I think that's what it's driven by. And I think obviously with the boom of the TV business, it's it has allowed, it's it's kind of opened up the pathways for, for us to all be making a lot more and be louder in the stories that we're telling. When it comes to pay and equity, is it fair yet? No. <laughs> Do you feel that weight of responsibility to make sure that yeah. all your crew are paid equitably? Yeah, yeah, we do. And obviously for us it's, you know, 
but given that we make things with mostly women at the centre, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't want to say the wrong thing here, but I'm not sure I've made anything where I can't imagine that I would have, where a man got paid more than a woman, for instance, but, you know, particularly in even roles. And look, sometimes there are, you know, obviously we're all dealing with an actual market at some point as well. But I think where we have real work to be done is still in the kind of below the line pay equity situation. There are roles that women have traditionally taken that are just, you know, the costume department, for instance, the hair and makeup department, where I think there's still a big inequity in terms of overall pay. You do a lot of work behind the scenes as well for for those behind the scenes. Why are you passionate about that? I mean, you'd be clearly aware that there's inequity across a range of issues, but I guess COVID really hit the industry hard and you've become a driver in ensuring there's a safety net for everyone that works behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, it certainly became clear to me during COVID that I could sustain gaps because I, you know, I, I'm I'm dealing with a lot of projects over a period of time. Producers really only get paid when something gets made anyway, but crews survive week to week. And so that became, you know, I was very upset during COVID because of that. We we obviously tried to, we we were very proud of the fact we didn't have to let anyone in our own company go and that we were able to keep people employed through that period, which for most businesses that wasn't the case, right? It was a very difficult time. For me, it's beyond that. I think a lot of it always comes back to the conversation about women actresses and directors to a certain point. But the thing that the work that we're also trying to do is to elevate women behind the camera in other roles. We need more. Why shouldn't there be women in the, the electrics departments? Why shouldn't there be more female production designers? All of those things, more female cinematographers. So that's something that even if we hire a male director, they've been great partners in kind of working with us to make sure that women lead the teams, the other teams. I do a little bit of work in sport and there's a big push to make sure that there's a, an equity, you know, a gender neutrality applied to nearly everything. Has it reached that point in Hollywood? Like do you go on to a movie set or go to produce something and say I want a 50-50 split or and do you look at those ratios? Is that part of your business model? Yeah, it is. You absolutely do look at it. I think it is going to take time to catch up in some of the roles in terms of gender and beyond that, you know, diversity. I think that's one of the bigger things that we look at. There's just nothing worse than looking out, right, at a crew and, like, everyone looks the same. It's just that's, you know, that we haven't done our job well if that's the case. Yeah, it's not just gender, is it? No, it's not just gender. And I think ageism is actually part of that as well. But I do think we have a lot of work to do, particularly here in Australia. We have to Training is really key and important and I think will become the next big discussion, particularly for companies like ours. You know, we've got to grow people from inception. And what's the best way to do that? Surely there's got to be more pathways through theatre production houses and high school drama departments and regional, you know, dramatic arts. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of actors, that's there's more of that happening. I think what I'm more interested in is how do we train up crews and how do we get more equity behind the camera? I think the path to do that is somehow like an apprenticeship, right? We have to kind of get paid positions because what I've realised if someone gets one opportunity they generally get two, but it's the first one that's really hard to come by, particularly someone like me where access was like kind of impossible. The thing we talk about a lot is like how does how do you help these people coming up? Because I think socioeconomic diversity is the thing that I'm probably most passionate about. And in my business, I remember going to California, every resume I got that someone had been to an Ivy League school, you know, and so you go, oh, wait, well, how, how are these other people getting through? You know, how are the people who can't afford to do an internship getting through? And so that's something that we really try and focus on and think about. 
Would I be wrong in assuming your background, being brought up by a single mum in housing community, played a big part in that social equity streak in you? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's everything. It's the thing I think about most. And I think that because it was that one or two people that really heard me or saw me when I was younger, someone said to me, I actually got an email from someone, I can't remember even who it was, but it was someone who works in the school systems in Australia and she said, thank you so much for talking about where you're from because what you hear is, you know, the, the boys that went to the connections, the same five schools that everyone went to in Australia. That, and by the way, there's five schools in America and there's five schools in England. And, and I remember because I did do very well at school and I got into Melbourne University to study law economics and I went. And I remember it was around the time I think the higher education tax was being introduced. And I really had to, I couldn't have, I couldn't have stayed. I couldn't afford to go to university if I didn't work. And I remember at the time, this is, you know, God, 20 years ago now, but I remember thinking, oh, everyone here has come from money, like everyone in this program. And, and I remember being very despondent by that. And, and I remember thinking that I didn't fit in. And so I just never want anyone to feel like that. You know, I think that's, I'm hoping that's changing, but there are still these places all over the world get stigmatized. And certainly Elizabeth, the area I grew up, had that thing. If you said you were from, you know, Elizabeth, people knew, yeah. And that's not specific to Australia. That's a worldwide issue. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Through COVID and the pandemic, we had the brilliant thought to not let production collapse, but bring it all to Australia and you moved to Byron Bay and made a couple of big productions and, and I heard you say you hadn't really rated Byron until you lived there for about four or five months and I thought that must have been a pretty lovely interlude really while well, you had a big job at hand. It was. It was. In fact, it, I know I often, it feels like so long ago even though it was only two years ago, but it was crazy because it felt like this kind of haven. You know, this is obviously before Australia really got hit with, with any kind of COVID wave as well. And so I, I kind of felt like we were on Fantasy Island. You know, that's the feeling I had. I was like, oh, my God. Like, and I was, I actually kind of remember being really conscious of talking to friends and colleagues back in LA and not being too excited about what we were doing. We were able to create this amazing kind of safe haven for people. Now I just need an excuse to go back. <laughs> There's no bad place in Australia to shoot, by the way. It's all good. Yeah, but I think about the job opportunities you created. I mean, with all the great accolades and awards, for me, I reckon 
just knowing that you have launched people every day, working class Australians in a career they love, whether it's grips or camera or lighting or costume, whatever it may be, that's got to be pretty satisfying. It is. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, mostly I give the credit, we have a business partner called Jodie Madison, who is an unbelievable woman in her own right, had a big career before she teamed up with me. Her and my husband and I really kind of anchor the company. And I think the thing we're most proud of is that we do, forget about the writers and directors and actors we do repeat business with. We do a lot of repeat business with our crews. We've worked multiple, multiple times with the same gaffers, the same hair and makeup people, the same grips, the same video assist, the same caterers, the same unit people. We, we've done a lot of repeat business. And when you can walk onto a set, I mean, you guys know, uh, it's, it's amazing to, because you know, our business is so transient and you often don't work with people more than once. And it's so busy, so it's so hard to kind of maintain those crews. So I think that's the thing. I have this dream that I could just, you know, work full time with the same people forever, just keep them on rotation. What about the kerfuffle made at the time about, you know, Hollywood getting all these breaks to film in Australia and it, it arguably wasn't fair? There's a perception that we got a big break on Nine Perfect Strangers and we didn't. And not sure the government's done anything to dispel that. But um, Well, it suited their narrative. Yeah, because we, we didn't get it, you know, the big incentive at a time when I think rightly a lot of other international productions were getting it, but we were an international production. The difference was Nicole and I, who are Australians, were also, you know, rights holders. And so I do think that should be a positive thing, you know, that Australians can bring international things back here, particularly ones like me and Nicole, where we come back and do local, we're doing local productions too, not just international productions. Our local business is very important to us. And so I understand we're part of the problem of how busy it became with our international stuff, but we're trying to be part of the solution as well. I think international incentives are crucial to maintain and build more infrastructure so that we can sustain industry long term. So I think that they need to happen. And I welcome, I get calls all day long from, you know, my international friends saying, should I film here? I was like, yeah, it's the best place in the world to make anything. Yeah, and look, obviously Baz Luhrmann, like yourself, has an affinity with Australia and he loves it. And to get Tom Hanks out here for that Presley biopic was just incredible on the Gold Coast. Yeah. We've got two really big hotbed production houses uh, in Australia at the moment being, you know, centred around Byron and, of yeah. course, the Gold Coast. What other areas do you think are potential hotspots for international producers? I mean, I think Victoria, obviously. We filmed a lot in Victoria. And, again, I think all of these places need to continue to build infrastructures. I mean, we used to film at Fox all the time, but now Marble's, you know, basically in there. And that's fine. So then what what do we build? You know, you, you, you know, we've taken over warehouses and turned them into stages. I'm ashamed to say I've never filmed in South Australia, even though I'm from there. Yeah. But I would like to. And I think they have landscapes and the geography that many other parts don't have and a really good infrastructure. I made a film in Tasmania, which was also incredible, even though obviously there's not a lot of infrastructure there. We had to bring, you know, a lot of people in to be able to do Jennifer Kent's movie, The Nightingale. But I don't think there's going to be, we filmed him in Alice Springs multiple times this year and so I'm, I'm hoping not to leave a stone unturned. Although I'm very scared of nature so I would like to make a big studio movie myself in Australia. I'm really scared of everything and apparently there's, there's a lot of things to be scared of in Australia. Yeah, well, you should know that. No, I know, yeah. I do, I'm scared. My husband had a leech in his mouth on Force of Nature when we were just filming it. 
Jodie had one on her hand and the director had one in his nose and I was like, oh, not sure where else in the world you'd have to. Yeah, and you can't shout down anyone that says, you know, I can't come to Australia because the, the reptiles and the insects and. Uh... For the most part, if you look at the stats, I think they're gonna, we're going to be able to keep them safe. But um, it's so funny. I mean, we've brought so many international people here. We just had Sigourney Weaver here for our Amazon show, Lost Flowers, and they just, people just love it. I honestly cannot say there's been one person who's had a negative experience coming here. Now, you're fresh off the plane, essentially, within 24 hours of the US um, with a big launch over there. Tell us all about that. So this is the movie I mentioned earlier, This um, based on this book. It's a movie for Netflix, Luckiest Girl Alive with Mila Kunis. It may be the thing I'm most proud of just because it deals, it deals, with, uh, it deals with really complicated subject matter. I won't give it away, but it deals with a lot of really tough subjects. But it, it is also, I think, a very hopeful movie. And so because of that, it took a long time to get made and it really needed someone with Mila's, you know, clout as a star, I think, to be able to get that movie made. And she she worked with us as a producer. It was my first time making a movie purely for a streamer and it's I'm really excited about it because like our TV shows, I know, well, I hope, but I believe people will watch. Yeah, it was just a terrific group of people. You know, the the novelist in that case wrote every draft of the script for seven years she must have done 30 drafts it's also partially based on her own life story so it's just it's special to me for so many reasons and it's one of those things I can't believe where where this day has arrived we've been chatting for a very short time and you've already kind of alluded to about six different projects on the go at the moment at any given time how many would you have on your plate we have a really robust slate of development probably 50 things 50 or 60 things at you know but but you never know we have a couple of things we just almost wrapped the second season of wolf like me so I feel like it's kind of relatively quiet right now but um everyone balks when I say that because COVID was so crazy we made I think seven or eight things I think next year is going to be busy but the truth is you never know until you know someone's officially greenlit your tv show film I'm really passionate about doing some more films, like some bigger films, just because it's my first love. And then continuing to, I think kind of, someone said to me the other day, you know what you do? You do like premium popular. And I was like, oh, I like that. You know, like I'm not chasing the critics' positive feedback because I really believe that we can impact the audiences. And so for me, there's been no greater thing to watch than how audiences have embraced these female-driven TV shows the last few years. So that, that's what I'm really focused on. I started off um, the chat talking about the fact that content is king. And at the moment, you know, the battleground uh, for eyeballs is, is TV platforms, streaming platforms, the big international movie houses. And during COVID, people couldn't go to the movies. Where do you think the future lies? I hope I'm right when I say it lies in people going back to the movies in America. Obviously, I think Australia, as was proven out with both Penguin and The Dry, they they went back in droves. You know, like it was so amazing to watch because they really missed that sense of community. I hope that's going to happen in America. I don't know. I'm really hopeful that a movie, like I haven't seen it yet, but like I'm excited to see this the Viola Davis movie, The Woman King, because I feel like that, is going to be a cinema experience and hopefully we'll bring people back. Um, but I don't know. I, I hope I hope that it's what what's happened is this sense that community wants to gather. It's like bookshops for me, you know. I still walk into a bookshop and just feel it makes me so happy. The powerhouses of um, 
streamers, though, for me signified the moment when some of your big Hollywood icons actually saw the value in TV and, and streaming, you know, when you had Nicole doing and switching from blockbuster movies to mainstream TV. That was a big switch. Yeah, and now now it doesn't seem it right because everyone's doing it. It is that thing of like you, you've felt this big shift the last few years into TV. But what opportunity it's created. Oh, my God. And, you know, to just to have so much fun and tell stories on a much bigger canvas in terms of, you know, the complexity for these actors of these characters that they're portraying. So, yeah, I think it's really exciting. What excited me is, is you know, we're doing our movie is in cinemas right now before it screens on Netflix. And I think, you know, they've been really good at buying some actual cinemas and doing these runs where people can get both. And that's still really exciting to me. So the flip side of movies and streaming is, of course, TV. And you've given Network 10 a new series called Undressed. Yes. How did that come about? Because Catherine Eisman, I think she's, you know, pretty well known to Australian audiences, but we haven't seen her for a while. What did you like about this one? What caught your eye? Well, it's funny because she, so I'd only met Catherine once. She actually interviewed Nicole and I, I think, for Big Little Lies. I can't remember which season it was, but, you know, like me, she was living in L.A. and um, came back and we reconnected because our kids were the same age and she told me about this idea she had. And I'd been thinking for a while, everything that we've done at Made Up Stories has been kind of organic. I didn't suddenly say, I'm starting a, you know, a non-scripted business. But what happened with Catherine was she told me about this idea and I did some deep dives on some of the books she'd written about the subject. And then she kind of did a reading on me. I mean, I just don't care about my appearance, have not for pretty much the last 10 years, particularly since I had twins. And so I was like basically living in black sweatpants and a black T-shirt before COVID. I, I like to say I had the COVID uniform before COVID. And she kind of talked to me because, you know, that's kind of when I met her or what I was wearing. And she said a couple of things. In what she was saying, there was no judgment around it. But what happened was recently after she said it, I was like, I'm going to, I remember I was doing a big business trip and I asked a stylist to like come to my house and uh, she looked at my wardrobe and it turns out I had a lot of quite nice things in my wardrobe, many of which I just didn't feel comfortable honestly wearing. And my husband used to make jokes. He, I, I used to go, oh, the babies, it's been, you know, 10 years. And, he's, and he, he would literally say, but you had twins. I was like, babe, like the ship has sailed. I got to, I got to get back into my nice clothes, you know. But I think for me it was I think partly confidence and just partly you get so worn down just by you know, you're focused on other things and my appearance was not my focus. But what happened after I talked to Catherine was I went to LA and I kind of had all these nice outfits and I even I bought some new shoes and, and I remember going to meetings and I remember every meeting I walked into someone would say, oh, you look great, you know, and it wasn't about like, oh, you look great, like, oh, we're going to take you more seriously. But I think I felt more confident. And I suddenly, I mean, this is such a kind of crazy thing to say, but I did own my power, I suppose, a bit more as like a woman in a, who in her early, you know, I just turned 50, 51 technically. So new 30, you know that. Um, that's what I'm hoping. I do feel better than ever, I will say that. So that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And so I was like, well, we don't know much about this space. So we teamed up with a friend of mine who'd also found himself, Eden Gahar, back here during COVID. All these Australians came back. And so it was really organic. We came up with an idea we loved. We talked to the people at 10 and Paramount Plus, Beverly and Dan, and they just kind of saw what we saw. We made a five-minute teaser because I was like, well, we should just spend our own money and do this and see. And I was really moved by it. And I remember thinking, oh, we, we have a company called Made Up Stories. This is a great way into telling other people's stories. 
And I found it fascinating, that process. I love doing anything new. And so for me, it was a bit of an experiment. And I'm keen to do more of it if I find those stories I want to tell, you know, a little bit like with Catherine. So it was really fun last night. My mum called me and she was loving it and watching it. But my nine-year-olds also were desperate to watch it. And so to find something that you can watch. It has such broad yeah, appeal. It does. And I think we all underestimate the power of the emotional connection we have to not just our appearance, but we have an emotional connection to clothing. Somehow it's some sort of anchor. Yeah, we get stuck, right? We're all stuck. And particularly now, I think we underestimate, you know, just how hard this last few years has been for a lot of people. And so anyone who was predisposed, they're kind of stuck. And so I think shifting even something as small as what you're wearing can can change their lives. What was the most powerful thing you learned about yourself? It's just the small things, right? I did just come back from a premiere and I wore an Australian design. I wore a Carl Zampetti dress and and I felt so good and I wore a light colour, which I never do. I've lived in black for, you know, most of the last 20 years and people saw me in a different way. Like I can't tell you how much feedback I've had and I think it's just because I felt lighter, you know, just kind of being brave enough to go, okay, I'm just going to try something different. Yeah, and I think that's what I learned actually making the show because you really, it covers a lot of different people. I was so moved by, you know, it could be as small as, you know, this is one episode where he takes off his hat, the guy, and it just makes me cry because he felt exposed, but he also needed to do that. So, yeah, it's, um, I'm a very unlikely person to make this show, but I'm really excited that we did. Yeah, we are too. Let's talk about the business. You're in partnership with your husband and your parents to twins. How does it work? Because, you know, most of us have to try to get ahead around the everyday and that's hard enough. I can't imagine how someone in your business who's in partnership with your husband and you've got twins and you straddle LA, Australia and now London, how do you manage that? My husband's amazing. He's really been the more hands-on parent, to be really honest with you, which is, you know, also this kind of taboo thing to talk about because it's, you know, people expect that it's going to be the mother that's going to be the hands-on parent. And I hesitate in asking that question because yeah. you don't ask that of men. No. But, you know, you're the powerhouse and you're the face of this business and you've got young kids. As another woman, yeah. I go, how the, hell, how the hell do you do it now? Yeah. Well, obviously I had two at once, which as some people say, it must be so hard having twins. I actually thought it was easier because I feel like at least you know what you're doing. You know, I got a lot of support. I also have lupus. So for the first, you know, couple of years of their life, I struggle to get up in the night. You know, I, it's, I still have a lot of pain at night and those things. So mm. I, and I was away filming from when they were, you know, really little, but we always make sure one of us is there. And I think in a weird way, running the business together has been a really positive thing. You know, we're good at different things, but we're also, we do a lot of the same things, but we've always got each other's backs and we're also partnered with some great women. So I also don't believe in that thing that like you can do it all. I just, what I try and explain to people is, you know, my life is basically my work and my children, and occasionally if I have to go out. But for the most part, I am in bed when the kids go to bed, kind of watching TV shows and working, which technically is my work. And is your husband a partner in the decision-making in terms of your wrestle ideas with productions you want to make? Totally. Not just him, but Jody and Sarah and, and Jean, in case you work with us. We're a very collaborative group. He's definitely, I think, for me... You know, he's really good because I'm always like, I want to do this. I want to do that. Or, you know, maybe I should direct. And he's like, maybe not now. (laughs) (laughs) And he's not wrong, by the way. Or I'll get asked to, as I'm sure you do too, right? it's, It's really hard to say no, but we have to say no too. I mean, even doing this podcast, I say no most of the time, 
I did it mostly because it wasn't just entertainment too. You talk to so many amazing women. And that's what inspires me is hearing women's stories, not in our business necessarily, but like how does someone who's, you know, a breakthrough scientist get their start? How did they find a way through? That's what really thrills me and excites me. So I think that you have to know your own limits. I also have an amazing group of friends that have been friends with me for 30, you know, Mary Cousas is my best friend in the world. So moving back to Sydney's, you know, our kids are the same age. And so having people that you can kind of share and talk with about all of those challenges. And also I do think now my kids are nine, it's a lot easier. I think babies are really hard. I, you know, I think it's physically much harder. Yeah. Being a twin, I'm curious about you being a mum of twins. I was also a twin. I don't know if you know that. No. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. My, yeah, my, there's a lot of, I have a big twin thing. My brother and sister are twins. They were born in like May 1970 and then my mother gave birth to me and my twin in July 71. My twin passed away a couple of days after we were born. Oh. Sister. So you got fraternal. Were you identical? I was not identical, but she was, she was a girl, but I was not identical. But I think there is this thing where like I've, I have always felt like I was living for two people in a weird way. Yeah, so my mother raised not just three children, but like we were one and under. It's kind of crazy, um, crazy story. And so I was always upset, a little bit obsessed with twins. And I did do IVF because, you know, I'd struggled with trying to have a child. I had multiple miscarriages. Mm. I, I'll never forget the day that they call you and they say, we, we know what you're having. Do you want to know? And I did want to know because, you know, too much needed control. But I was like, you can't tell me because my husband's not with me. So write it down on a piece of paper, write it down, put it in an envelope and I'll come and get it. And I went to get I picked up the envelope. My husband and I never fight except this one day we'd had a tiff and we were going to some event and so I didn't want to open it, angry. I can't believe the timing of this. And so we went home and it was still not great and so the envelope just sat by the bed and we woke up in the morning and we're in a much better place and then we opened the envelope to find out what we were having. And I'll never forget it because obviously it just said you were having a boy and a girl, which, you know, when you're as old as I was having kids, <laughs> that's good. No, I honestly didn't care. But weirdly, I'd, th- I'd always thought I just wanted boys because I'm so scared of teenage girls because I was one. But they definitely bring out different things in me, these kids. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's good. It's good. They're nine. It's a good age. <laughs> it's a good age and it's all ahead of you. Bruna Papandreou, what a treat to have you. Uh, let it all hang out here at Short Black. I really appreciate you giving up your time. You're a very busy woman. Can't wait to see what's next on the plate. Of course, we're at uh, 10 Paramount, a thrill with the new show Undressed, but I can't wait to see what's coming up, you know, on every platform. So congratulations on all you do for flying the Aussie flag as proudly as you do. Also championing women's stories the way you do. That's really powerful. So um, on behalf of me and my girlfriends, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks, Sandra. There aren't enough of you out there to keep us, um, to keep our stories being told. So well done and, and we loved having you. Thank you. Love being here. Thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.